The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. It's time to overthrow the chains of capitalist oppression. Communism will sweep the world. And the days of the U.S. imperialist war machine are numbered. Take heed, boy. Join the revolution or suffer the consequences. Thanks for the warning. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 18, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Ever since I've been involved in politics and in public affairs, beginning in the late 70s and early 80s, there has been an influence in play behind the political mosaic of my age. I'm speaking, of course, of the author of The Rules for Radicals, Saul Alinsky, whose book and ideas have been cited as the Bible used by the Democrats to win elections and stir the pot of discontent and revolution. Is it true? That's the big question for today, which we will delve right into following this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Today's show will be another of our ongoing presentations on a theme central to the very existence of this show, the polarities of left and right, and the problems that arise in the midst of all the confusion about what each of those labels represents. Despite the many hours we've dedicated to this theme on past presentations of the show, and including today's chapter on left and right, There's still much to be said about these differences that we will not be able to directly address until future shows. But today our focus is the influence of radical revolutionary Saul Alinsky in his famous book, Rules for Radicals. Now, I found the book quite valuable over the years, but to the uninitiated, the book can present quite a challenge in attempting to determine the author's value system, which you would think would be central to all of this, and what kind of society Saul Alinsky envisioned. Remarkably, his book has been called both left and right wing, and you'll be hearing from several relevant and significant voices today who will demonstrate exactly that point to you. Now here's why, even for me, talking about Saul Alinsky and his rules for radicals represents a bit of a Gordian knot, because I find myself both agreeing and disagreeing with each of the debaters in the exchange we'll be hearing throughout today's show. I've selected a number of specific parts of the August 12th debate, those that most focused on our theme, and I've eliminated a lot of the ad hominem attacks made to some extent by all of the speakers, I'm afraid to say. So if you want to hear all of that, be sure to check it out online. Remember, it's the big lie exposing the Nazi roots of the American left. August 12, 2017 is a posting. Now, when we talk about the word radical, we should know what we're talking about. 
just the basic dictionary definition, Funk and Wagnalls describes radical as, quote, of or proceeding from or pertaining to the root, the foundation, the fundamental, and two, thoroughgoing, extreme, radical measures, and three, in politics, one who advocates widespread governmental changes and reforms at the earliest opportunity, end quote. Now, in the field of politics, there are a few other technicalities that must be acknowledged, and yet rarely are, except through unconscious admissions that are presented as an unalterable given and not something that we have a choice about. And this is part of the debate that you will not be hearing today. The big technicality is that government is an agency of force. It is not the force itself. It is a moral agency regarding the just use of force in society. We cannot do anything about the necessity of having such an institution as libertarians would like us to believe. But we always have a choice about how we will use that force to govern ourselves. In the field of politics, noted Isabel Patterson, author of God of the Machine, force is what is governed. So, on technical grounds alone, when we vote in a democracy, we're always voting about how force should be used. In other words, you've got a gun. That's your vote. What are the actions you can take with that gun that would be both moral and justified? Would you regard it as being moral to pick up your gun and then force employers to pay their employees wages that are determined by you, the holder of the gun? Would you regard it as being moral to use your gun to rob your neighbors down the street, forcing them to pay for a life-saving operation or medical attention to yourself or a member of your family? Would you regard it as being moral to use a gun to prevent the discussions of issues with which you disagree? Using a gun to achieve any of these objectives explicitly violates everyone's right to life, liberty, and property. There's no escaping that. Using a gun to protect everyone's life, liberty, and property from others who seek to violate them is both moral and justifiable. Yet throughout virtually every major political debate you'll hear, this entire context is always dropped. A complete irony given the fact that today we'll be talking about radical changes in actions, and there's nothing more fundamental and radical than these technical acknowledgements. Like, what is it you're actually talking about? We ignore them at our own peril. Once again, we must never forget that freedom and capitalism sit on the right. These are the environments of individualism and of life, liberty, and property. Free will voluntary choice, using force to defend and protect life, liberty, and property is the ruling principle of the right. All other variations of violations of life, liberty, and property, however minor they might be regarded, sit on the left. Using force to violate some aspect of the rights to life, liberty, and property is the ruling principle of the left. The left represents the initiation of force. The right represents the defensive and retaliatory use of force under a system of justice. The left represents the collective, the right, the individual, and so on. These are the forces at work pertaining to the root or foundation of what is truly radical. Now, the controversy over Saul Alinsky begins on the very opening page of his book, which features three epigrams, the third being his own. Quote, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, from all our legends, mythology, and history, 
and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom was Lucifer. End quote. Need I say more about why the left in particular so adores Alinsky's book, Rules for Radicals? Yes, in fact, I do need to say a lot more about this, but not until you hear the following kickoff to the exchange I referred earlier. On this side of our bumper, we'll be hearing from Dinesh D'Souza, whose new book, The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. And on the other side of the bumper, we'll be hearing the first of the opposing points of view as presented by Ralph Benko, the current Alinsky Center president. After that, I'll return with my own two bits to disentangle some of the problems I have with both sides of the argument. So, hang on to your philosophical hats, because here we go. My, my case on Alinsky really relies on three links in a chain. And to defeat the case, you have to break one or more of those links. The first link in the chain is simply to say that common experience tells us that the Democratic Party today is completely different from the Democratic Party of, say, 50 years ago. In other words, the Democratic Party today is not the party of, let's say, Harry Truman, or John F. Kennedy, or even Jimmy Carter. The Democratic Party today is the party of Obama and Hillary, to a lesser degree, the party of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It's a different kind of party and something or someone made it that way. Now, that's the first link in the chain. The second link is simply to say, what are the distinguishing features of this new Democratic Party? The old Democratic Party seemed to be a patriotic party, generally committed to the same goals as most of us in this room, but the difference was over the means, what to do with American prosperity, for example, how to share it. Or, yes, America should be strong in the world, but is it better for America to be more or less interventionist? These were debates about means, but agreeing on the ends. The new Democratic Party, I would say, is characterized by three new features. First, a kind of rather systematic deployment of lawlessness in public policy. And so, for example, the immigration laws say one thing, but Obama does another thing. The Defense of Marriage Act says one thing, but he does another thing. Obama, in a sense, literally sees himself as above the law. The law is a tool. The second feature is a willingness to use the power of the state against your opponents. In other words, we live at a time where even the post office, the Bureau of Land Management, all these places have SWAT teams. And so for the first time, I think this new Democratic Party uses the power of the government, of the IRS, of the EPA, to not only enforce its will, but to bludgeon its opponents into submission. You get on the wrong side of these guys, they think nothing of, of sending the, the tax audit people after you. This is the new Democratic Party. And the third feature is enriching yourself by shaking down private corporations and the government. Obama and Hillary are both sort of global specialists at this. 
They figure out how to use leverage to public power to, in a sense, rent or sell public policy. And they also figure out how to enrich themselves enormously in the process. Obama was a community organizer, but you won't find him around any poor people these days. He's hobnobbing with the billionaire set. Bill and Hillary came to Washington, D.C., and despite having government jobs all their career, they have a net worth of $300 million. This is the new Democratic Party. How did it get that way? I think the simple answer is it got that way, not entirely, but largely, through the influence of one man, Saul Alinsky, and the influence he exercised independently over Obama and over Hillary. So another key link in my chain is that Hillary and Obama were both at a formative time of life shaped by Alinsky. Now, Obama never knew Alinsky, never met the man. Alinsky died in, I believe, 1972. But Obama kept going back to Chicago. Why? To study under the Alinskyites. He even became a kind of Alinskyite instructor. And so I'm suggesting that he learned his scamming techniques from the Alinsky way. Hillary met Alinsky in high school. Uh, had a close relationship with Alinsky, brought him to Wellesley College where she was a student, was later offered a job by Alinsky. And so both Obama and Hillary, I think, at a, a key time of life, imbibed, you might say, the Alinsky Kool-Aid. Now I want to talk a little bit about that Alinsky Kool-Aid to see if it is recognizably the force behind, the destructive force, I would say, behind the America we live in now. Most people think that to figure out Alinsky, you got to go read the rules for radicals because, gee, there's the dedication to Lucifer on, in, in, in one of the opening pages, and that tells you all you need to know. I think that that book actually tells you relatively little about Alinsky. First of all, the dedication itself is highly problematic. Alinsky was an atheist, probably like a good many of you in this room. He didn't believe in God, and naturally he didn't believe in Lucifer. So why does a guy who does not believe in God or Lucifer dedicate a book to the guy he doesn't believe in? Clearly this is not about Alinsky saying, I want to be the devil. Clearly something else is going on. Remember, Alinsky himself embraces Machiavelli, and one of Machiavelli's key pieces of advice is not to play your full hand up front. And so you can be fairly safe in assuming that the Alinsky book is not going to be the full and true window into Alinsky. You have to look someplace else. Normally, we would have no place to look, but happily, toward the very end of his life, Alinsky gave a series of interviews. This was in 1971-1972, really in concluding in the year he died, one was to Playboy magazine, a very detailed interview, and another one was uh, to Harper's magazine, I believe. In any case, in these interviews, Alinsky basically said stuff that had never appeared in public or print before, and they give you a real window into Alinsky. The first thing he says is that from a very young age, I tried to figure out how I could get stuff for free without having to work for it. And he describes with great relish a scam that he, he developed at the University of Chicago for eating in dining halls without paying. And not only, now a normal guy would be like, I pulled off the scam, I'm a very clever guy. Alinsky, and we see the Alinsky method kicking in right here, is he said, I began to hold seminars 
around the university to instruct other students in how they could eat without paying for it. In other words, I think this was the birth of community organizing in the United States. Alinsky then graduates from school. He goes on to college. He studies criminology. Very interestingly, he then gets in with, the, with a series of gangs, an Italian gang that he talks about, uh, and then, most significantly, the Al Capone gang. And here, Alinsky is very interesting because he talks about his interactions with the gang. At one point, for example, the Capone boys want to bring in an assassin from out of state to kill people, and Alinsky, far from objecting to the killing, objects to the high price of bringing in a, an out-of-state assassin. He tells, the, he tells the Capone guys, why don't we hire one of the local guys? They'll do it for less. Alinsky then tells Playboy in the inter interview, he says, you know, he goes, I really admired the way in which these gang members could shake down people and extract money and stuff out of them. The only downside is that every now and then they got shot. They got knocked off. So Alinsky goes, it got me thinking about how I could pull off a similar scam without the risk of getting knocked off. And then Alinsky realized that crime is actually very similar to politics. And so Alinsky realized, and again, I'm not divulging Alinsky's private thoughts. Alinsky says a lot of the things that I applied to community organizing, I learned from the Mafia. That is not a direct quote, but it's a paraphrase of a direct quote. So essentially, Alinsky took the Mafia's shakedown tactics, which is essentially up against the wall, pay up or we're going to get you, and brought them into politics. And here we have really the beginnings of Obamaism and Hillaryism. In this country today, there is a great fight over whether or not the entrepreneur, the creator of wealth, the people who actually work and make stuff, should they have the power? Or should an outside group of self-anointed bureaucrats and experts who declare themselves to be progressive on the side of history, on the side of the future, do they get to kind of come in and take things over and deploy wealth ultimately for their own gain, for their own private gain? This is the Democratic Party that we have now. Frankly, if you don't like Trump, this is how we got Trump. Hi, Ralph Benko. Wore my black hat just in case there was any dubiousness about how far right wing I am. My biggest problem with Dinesh is he's so far to my left, when I turn in his direction as I see pink. But this is typical Dinesh D'Souza confabulation of Saul Alinsky's legacy. Barack Obama was 11 years old when Saul Alinsky died. They never met. I spoke to, I interviewed a friend of mine, Arnie Graff, who took over the industrial area foundations and who mentored Barack Obama for about two days or a week at a seminar. Barack was mostly interested in how Arnie was raising a racially mixed family because he himself came from a racially mixed family. But ultimately, he turned away definitively from the Alinsky message 
of community organizing to give power to the people against the government and the oligarchs, telling Arnie, I want to go into the system, I want to become a powerful political figure, a judge or a lawyer. Hillary Clinton met Saul Alinsky two or three times, wrote her honors thesis about him, turned down an opportunity to work with him because she said, I think Saul is magnificent, but you can't take this to scale. I don't want to put pressure from the, from the community on the government to carry out our will. I want to become a powerful central planner. She explicitly turned away from Saul Alinsky. So Dinesh, trying to hang the corruption of the modern left and the Democratic Party on Saul Alinsky is just factually wrong. You got one thing absolutely right. Saul Alinsky was all about power, taking power. The left, Saul Alinsky was one of us. He was a classical liberal in the British sense of John Locke, Adam Smith, and the left has appropriated his identity and his work. He never said that the ends justify the means. Read the chapter. He asks explicitly, what ends justify what means? Okay, let's do exactly that then. And that was, of course, Ralph Benko, Alinsky Center president. Let's read the chapter he referred to, the chapter of Means and Ends, which starts on page 24 of my copy of Rules for Radicals, and it begins, quote, That perennial question... Does the end justify the means is meaningless as it stands. The real and only question regarding the ethics of means and ends is, and always has been, does this particular end justify this particular means? End quote. On page 33, this is important, Alinsky defines what ethics means for him. The ethics of means and ends. So what is ethics? Quote, to me, ethics is doing what is best for most, end quote. <laughs> that's ethics? Good Lord, that's not ethics. So robbing one wealthy person for the economic benefit of two or more other people is the grounds of ethics, best for most. He doesn't even define what he means by best. What does that mean, best for most? What is constantly missed in asking this question is the glaringly obvious, and I've been talking about it all the time. In politics, there is no end that can be separated from its means. They are always one and the same. The means and ends are one and the same and always have been throughout history. Show me a time when they weren't. This has been the very false cry of the left since time immemorial. Communism, fascism, and other various forms of totalitarianism have always justified themselves by promising some glorious end that will be enjoyed, you know, by some distant future citizenship that will be gained on the suffering and sacrifices of those living today. This is very spiritual and very religious in a lot of ways. It's like promising the afterlife and then living in misery during your life so that you'll have this afterlife. Entire generations have lived in slavery, under dictatorships, all believing in some magical, prosperous future 
that can somehow possibly be attained by any evil means. This has been the history of mankind, and it's a tragedy. The problem is that, of course, ethics has nothing to do with numbers. Doing what is best for most, quote-unquote, in no way describes even what is meant by best, since Alinsky is about one thing and one thing only. He is clearly referring to power, not to ethics. Worse, unearned power. He's, ta- he's always talking about taking power, taken power. Never mind what other people think. So here we have some guy named Ralph Banco describing himself as a classical liberal. Get that. A person on the right, presumably, who is completely enmeshed in the false morality and ethics of the left. Saul Alinsky was all about power, taking power. Saul Alinsky was one of us, he says. He's a classic liberal in the British sense, end quote. Yikes! <laughs> on the right? Are you kidding me? This is so problematic in the sense of totally confused. Alinsky's book is described on its own cover as, quote, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals, end quote. And pragmatism it is indeed. As we've illustrated many, many times on our past shows dedicated to pragmatism, check them out, pragmatism will always drift to the left because that's its only political direction. Using violence is perfectly pragmatic to a person whose only goal is power and who believes ethics is about numbers and not absolutes of right and wrong. And once again, ends and means end up being the same, don't they? So you can see the contradiction and challenge for those of us in favor of freedom and capitalism, which are literally distinguished from all other political economic forms and environments on the grounds of prohibiting the use of force and replacing it with the principle of consent. So if, to justify the ends of consent and voluntarism and freedom, we use and employ the initiation of force to achieve them, I don't think we're ever going to arrive at an environment of consent or freedom. How are you going to do that, coming out of totalitarianism? Who's going to be the nice guy to end the system that gives a lot of people power? Notes Ayn Rand, ethics is an objective, metaphysical necessity of man's survival. It is a code of values to guide man's choices and actions. Since reason is man's basic means of survival, that which is proper to the life of a rational being is the good. That which negates, opposes, or destroys it is the evil. Two essentials of the method of survival proper to a rational being are thinking and productive work. End quote. Then we have Dinesh D'Souza himself saying, quote, Rules for radicals is not helpful. It tells relatively little about Alinsky, end quote. Well, duh. I mean, Rules for Radicals is not an account about the man Alinsky. It's not a biography or an autobiography. It's a set of ideas and principles that were popularized by Alinsky. And those ideas and principles will tell you a lot about Alinsky if you understand them properly in the first place. He's on the left, no matter how much he or his disciples may protest otherwise. At the root of everything he says in his book, all the tactics, everything, there is that motivation of wanting something for nothing, which is at the root of all leftist thought. From a very young age, I tried to figure out how to get stuff for free, he quotes Linsky saying in his Playboy interview. Well, you didn't need to hear that to understand that that was what, how the guy thinks, because that's in his philosophy. 
And worse, D'Souza assumes, quote, the old Democratic Party was generally committed to the same goals as most of us in this room. But the difference was over means, what to do with America's prosperity, how to share it. Oh my goodness, end quote. America's prosperity is a consequence of the condition of freedom and capitalism that exists in America relative to other nations. Any wealth created belongs only to those who earned it, and it is patently immoral to even be talking about sharing it when we all know that sharing is a voluntary action and that we're talking about government, an agency of force that's going to be doing the sharing. That's not sharing. What is bizarrely consistent and an idea shared by all three of the debaters was the importance of having met the person, Saul Alinsky himself, in order to be able to justify that one has been influenced by that person. I mean, all of the speakers were focused on personality and cult, when the heart of the matter is about philosophy and ideas. According to this logic, since I never met Aristotle or Ayn Rand, no one can argue that they had any influence on me. I mean, really. What all of them don't get, or at least don't say, it is the ideas that influence others, not the fact that the influenced have personally met the influencers. This is one of the things that makes the left wing and the right wing exactly the same. Both camps reject objective ideas. I see and hear it every day, particularly from the so-called conservatives. That's why we always make a point. We're not right-wing, we're just right. I mean, here in Ontario, Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne and progressive conservative leader Patrick Brown are on the same page with respect to just about every policy going. Yet there are still those who would vote for Brown believing that this will somehow make their problems associated with Wynne go away. It's, it's nutty. Even within the PC party, there are activists trying to get that party to return to its conservative roots, which it never had in my entire political lifetime. They choose to remain utterly blind to the fact that Ontario's conservatives are self-proclaimed progressives, meaning leftists, but they vote for them on the faith alone that they are on the right. Well, when it comes to Saul Alinsky, he does not care about anyone's particular code of values, so he says, all are equal to him. Objectivity does not exist in the Alinsky camp, and that's why he sells his leftist pragmatism as being applicable to all groups. After all, it's a way of pushing them all leftward, isn't it? Now, continuing their responses to Dinesh D'Souza, here are, on this side of the bumper, Saul Alinsky's son, David Alinsky, and on the other side of the bumper, Ralph Benko again, Alinsky Center President. There are three basic myths about my father. The first is, the book is dedicated to Lucifer. The fact of the matter is, is that that page in the book, if you look at it, is called a frontispiece. There are three notations on that page. One by Rabbi Hillel, who died in 110 BC, a little while ago. The second is by Thomas Paine. And the third is by my father. He talks about Lucifer. All right, who was Lucifer? Historically, he's a metaphor for evil inclination. In the Hebrew, it's Yetzirah, that exists in every person 
and tempts them to do wrong. This is from Genesis 6-5, if you want to look it up. The word Satan comes from a Hebrew verb meaning to oppose or to obstruct. And he certainly intended to do that, to oppose or obstruct the establishment. The reference to Lucifer is not about doing evil, but rather than rather opposing the accepted status quo of the haves at the expense of others. The second myth is that his philosophy and tactics was biased, biased toward the Democratic Party. This is also not true. While he uses the word democrat or democratic a number of times in the text, he never says that this is for the Democrats. This is for any organization, any people, any group, as a series of signposts on how to think about power politics. And let's face it, we are all involved one way or another in power politics. If we agree with each other, fine. If we don't, we're looking for ways to convince or to otherwise obtain that power for the good of ourselves, for the good of our community, for the good of our nation. His interest was solely in providing a means, a way of thinking and organizing for all people, whether they be black or white, yellow or brown, American, Native American, or any other, any other group, including libertarians. People regardless of color, origin, or politics, with no political power to gain for themselves a sufficiently meaningful measure of political influence that they could see a path forward to attain for themselves that measure of freedom, security, and independence that the haves have always exercised and have taken for granted as their birthright. The third myth is that he was a communist, Marxist, socialist, capitalist-hating, God-hating anarchist whose sole mission in life was to destroy the republic. Nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, he was a committed capitalist who believed that it was only through self-interest that individuals and groups achieved anything. Why work hard, he would say, when in a communist system, working hard achieves nothing, and it's only the party leaders who make out. Everyone else were just slaves. Anyway, he would say, I could never be a communist or a socialist. They don't have a sense of humor, and that would be deadly. He was a Democrat, there's no question about that. He was a lifelong Democrat. However, more than being a Democrat, he believed in the Republic and the ability of people to organize for themselves regardless of their party, regardless of their community, regardless of their race, creed, or color, 
to gain for themselves the individual and collective rights that our country provides. Dinesh, I didn't, dis I didn't completely dispel your premise because life is not long enough to dispel all of your innuendos and misstatements. And Saul Alinsky concealed, carried a sidearm because of death threats from the KKK. You continue to distort the message of Saul Alinsky which doesn't bother me. You're a house cat. You sit on a pillow and you drink cream. And you consider alley cats like Saul Alinsky and me riffraff. I get it. And you earned it. Saul Alinsky had nothing against earnings. You're making all of this stuff up. Read the book if you don't agree. I don't have an enough minutes for this. We need more of you to stand up and not criticize the government, but take power now. Thank you very much. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past archived broadcasts featuring our past discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Now, the last voice we heard was that of Ralph Benko. We'll be hearing later on from Dinesh D'Souza about just how Saul Alinsky Ku Klux Klan strategies were conducted. And it'll sound very familiar to what you've been hearing about at very recent Republican rallies or any other rallies that might be supportive of Donald Trump. But the fact that Alinsky may have been receiving threats from the Ku Klux Klan is perfectly understandable and consistent with D'Souza's position, since, as you'll hear shortly, Alinsky misrepresented the Klan as being Republican supporters when, in fact, they have always been supporters of the Democrats, a fact of history that we have often reminded our listeners of. So perhaps that's what they were angry about. Who knows? Once again, leftist name-calling and a refusal to debate. I don't have enough minutes, he says. How many minutes did you waste telling us that? Read the book? I did. Nothing has been made up. Mr. Banco, nothing. If anything, a lot has been, pardon the word, left out. And that's left with a capital L. Worse, to call for less criticism of government and to take power of that same government without, you know, without stating the purpose of doing so, I mean, that's pure fascism. What, just power for power's sake? You know, especially when you're talking about the haves and have-nots, what the hell is that about? As to David Alinsky's three myths about his father, namely rejecting the reference to Lucifer as being evil, the rejection of the idea that Rules for Radicals was written for the Democratic Party, and that Alinsky was not a communist Marxist, but a committed capitalist who believed that only through self-interest can we get ahead, quote-unquote. Lucifer is not about doing evil, he says, but rather about opposing the accepted status quo of the haves, 
at the expense of others? Well, that's an ambiguous statement at best. If the status quo has been achieved at the expense of others who have had their lives, liberty, or property threatened by force, he would have a point. But we already know that issues of life, liberty, and property are irrelevant to the pragmatists whose only objective is power. If power is all it's about, what the hell does that, any of that matter to them? Rules for Radicals was not planned for the Democratic Party, says David Alinsky, while making it quite clear, no question about that, he says, that his father, Saul Alinsky, was a lifelong Democrat. And then, he says, completely contradictory to that, quote, more than that, meaning more than being a Democrat, Alinsky was also a Republican in the sense of being supportive of the Republican form of government. Who knows what he means by these terms, but, because in the context in which all those things were presented, I don't think we can draw any conclusions. But here's something he said that was interesting, quote, and a belief in people being able to organize for themselves, regardless of party, regardless of community, race, creed, color, to gain for themselves the individual and collective rights that our country provides. Note the term, organize for themselves, quote-unquote. The rest of that phrase should read, organize for themselves against others. Now, freedom of association is a different thing. That's a different thing than organizing for yourself. You can organize through freedom of association. But that's not what they're talking about when they're talking about organizing. They're talking about taking power, irrespective of the community around them. Freedom of association, of course, for peaceful purposes, is a fundamental right. Freedom to organize regardless of community, for example, means that the community's right to organize is merely another power base, and no objective and justifiable ends can be identified. These are huge vacuums that they cannot answer. And what the hell is a collective right? No such thing. If it's not an individual right, then it's not a right. Two people in a room do not possess any more rights than they, did, didn't put, than they had before they walked into the room. David Alinsky also stated that his father was, quote, a committed capitalist who believed that only through self-interest can people achieve things. Well, in his chapter, A Word About Words, which means a word about epistemology, Saul Alinsky makes it sound like he's a capitalist when in fact his ideology and pragmatic advice for radicals doesn't correspond to the principles of capitalism. Quote, Self-interest, like power, wears the black shroud of negativism and suspicion. To many, the synonym for self-interest is selfishness. The word is associated with a repugnant conglomeration of vices such as narrowness, self-seeking, and self-centeredness, everything that is opposite to the virtues of altruism and selflessness. The myth of altruism, he continues, as a motivating factor in our behavior could arise and survive only in a society bundled in the sterile gauze of New England Puritanism and Protestant morality and tied together with the ribbons of Madison Avenue public relations. It is one of the classic American fairy tales, end quote. So writes Alinsky on page 53 of Rules for Radicals, in a segment that I know many would falsely associate with something that Ayn Rand might even have said. And he continues, quote, Whenever the word power is mentioned, somebody sooner or later will refer to the classical statement of Lord Acton and cite it as follows, quote, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, end quote. In fact, the correct quote, quotation is, he says, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
the corruption of power is not in power, he says, but in ourselves. Power or organized energy may be a man-killing explosive or a life-saving drug. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers put it this way, What is power but the ability or faculty of doing a thing? What is the ability to do a thing but the power of employing the means necessary to its execution? Pascal, who was definitely not a cynic, observed that justice without power is impotent, power without justice is tyranny, end quote. Now, all of these quotes that I just read out of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals could be taken two different ways, left and right. I mean, look at every word. When he uses the word justice, does Alinsky mean what we mean by justice, or does he mean social justice? Given that all he ever talks about is, is his philosophy of pragmatism and, and that the greater good for the greater number kind of thing. So obviously it's about numbers. But justice, like rights, is only an individual concept and can only apply to individuals since each individual is a separate and distinct moral agent. Only as an individual can he be held responsible for his actions. Justice to a lefty means equalizing the wealth or the resources of the haves with the so-called have-nots. You know, Ayn Rand always pointed out that if you want to see what the haves have and the have-nots do not have, it is freedom. Here again on this side of the bumper, David Alinsky's response to Dinesh D'Souza, while on the other side of the bumper, upon our return, Dinesh D'Souza gets the last word. What we're talking about here is means and ends. Like I said before, we're all involved in one way or another with power politics. And the question is, if you are being oppressed for whatever reason, from whatever source, what are your means of fighting back? And what is the end you wish to attain? Communities like in Rochester or in the south side of Chicago, in New York, in Canada, what did they have? They didn't have the power. They didn't have the political power. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the police. They didn't have the laws. What did they have? They had themselves. So you use what you have with what you've got, period. So what did he have? He had people. So he could send a couple hundred people to the Rochester Symphony Orchestra. Or he could send a couple hundred people to O'Hare Airport in that famous story. You use people. Was he working outside the system? Yes, he was working outside the system. How could he work inside the system? They weren't in the system. The system was oppressing the people, and they had to find a way to fight back. Means and ends. You use what you have with what you've got. It's as simple as that. Now, to give Alinsky credit, he was a very ingenious man, and he figured out very creative ways of making his point, which 
essentially put the Republicans typically in a very bad light. At one time, Alinsky, for example, was approached by a group of leftists who wanted to, to protest the Republican Party by holding up posters saying the Rep Republican Party is the party of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, Alinsky is a very smart guy. He would have known for sure that the Ku Klux Klan was, for almost the entirety of its history, an organized element of the Democratic Party. The progressive historian Eric Foner says, for 30 years, the Klan was the domestic terrorist arm of the Democratic Party. Alinsky knew this. But what advice does Alinsky give to these young leftists? He says, listen, don't have posters, because that's the usual leftist claptrap. He says, all of you come dressed as Klansmen. And then when the Republican speaker begins to speak, you just jump up and down and cheer wildly so that you have created a media event that makes it sound like the Klan loves the Republicans. So here's a classic example of straight-out deception, historically invalid, in fact, the opposite of the truth, a big lie if you want to use the term of my new book. But Alinsky had this uncanny ability to realize that you could use the big lie effectively to extract concessions. Even when Alinsky would protest against private companies, he'd find out that they're sponsoring, for example, a concert, Masterpiece Theater. Alinsky would say, all right, let's pay 500 guys to go in the theater, and when the performance of classical music starts, all of us will begin to cough and fart. Why? To disrupt and destroy and ruin the performance. The company will be so embarrassed at this that they will then, behind closed doors, we don't even have to do the protest. We'll just threaten to do it, and they'll pay us off behind closed doors before the event even takes place. With regard to whether or not Alinsky was a leftist or a rightist, let's just put it this way. Once you start talking about the haves and the have-nots, and you treat the haves as if their success, their earnings, their created wealth is all somehow accidental. In other words, something that is merely power that rained like manna from heaven on their heads and they are ruthlessly trying to protect it. And the have-nots as the victims of social misfortune who now must organize and struggle to take from the haves, we are now in a straight-out Marxist class division of society between the haves and the have-nots, let's remember that the whole of the United States was invented to, as an alternative to this framework. The United States was based on the idea that if you limit the size of the government, you avoid the kind of oppression that was common and systematic in feudal Europe, and you allow something kind of new in the world, which is wealth creation. People work hard, people come up with new ideas and patents and copyrights, people invent things, they create wealth. Am I a have or a have not? Well, when I came to America with $500 in my pocket, I was most definitely a have not. Over time, through effort, by selling books, giving speeches, making movies, I guess I'm now a member of the haves. So was, is, the, is Dinesh now an oppressor? whereas the old Dinesh was a wonderful potential Alinskyite. This is a kind of shallow leftist way of dividing society, never asking the question, was this wealth stolen or created in the first place? So, in conclusion, 
If you see a tone of brutality, incivility, intimidation, um, a, a smoke and mirrors, deceptive propaganda, if all of this is now the regrettable features of our culture, where on earth does it come from? We can see the nucleus of this in Rules for Radicals. Alinsky didn't just do it, he was actually proud of it. Thank you. When David Alinsky argued that you use what you have and what you've got, he pointed out that Saul Alinsky had people so he could send people to a concert, you know, working outside the system, the law. Well, what he was actually saying was that they were violating the rights of others from those who performed in that concert to those who paid their money to hear the concert. It's just like the protests that we have all around in various cities. You know, you have the lefties that come out to just violently protest and get in between the people who want to hear the speech and the people who want to give the speech, and therefore they end up violating everybody's freedom of speech. I mean, let's face it, David Alinsky was justifying out-and-out extortion for its own sake, and he's quite proud of it. When he uses the phrase working outside the system, he means working without considering the rights of others with whom one may have a disagreement. Totally left-wing thinking. For his part, Vinish D'Souza was quite correct in his observations about the association of the Democratic Party with the Ku Klux Klan, and in particular with regard to his clearly identifying the leftist nature about speaking you know, in terms of haves and have-nots. But when it was argued that Rules for Radicals was written for anyone, regardless of political leanings, then we have to also include, do we not, fascists, Nazis, communists, racists, and all other kinds of groups for whom Rules for Radicals was apparently purposely written. They're just as good as any other group, aren't they? At least according to Saul Alinsky's philosophy and his followers. But here's the rub. The one group that Rules for Radicals was not written for, despite any intentions of doing so, if there were any, is for advocates of freedom and capitalism and for the right. And why do I say that? Because the rules for radicals are in direct conflict with the rules for freedom. <laughs> They're two different things. You know, these are the rules that are never discussed by power seekers because freedom and capitalism diffuse power. They put power back into the hands of individuals, which is not where groupists want the power. They don't want the power away from the groups. They want the power in the hands of the group with them being the leader of the group. The thing about freedom, you always hear freedom isn't free. Well, that's true. It's also not natural. Freedom makes many demands of us. It is not a natural condition, despite its association with so-called natural rights. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed, noted Francis Bacon famously. And nature to be either commanded or obeyed must be understood, n'est-ce pas? I mean, to quote our guest Christopher Essex of last week, technicalities matter. And to create a free democracy if that's your intention, and of course there's nothing in Rules for Radicals that suggests any such thing, but you must adhere to some of the following technicalities. Freedom means responsibility, and only individual responsibility. There are, there are no other kinds. Freedom means commitment, and that's an individual commitment. Freedom means having an informed electorate, informed by facts, not fake news and make-believe theories of how life should be run for others. And freedom means an educated electorate, which is different from being informed. It 
two different things. Educated not with facts, but with what Dr. Essex described last week as invariable knowledge. Those principles and realities that do not change over time or with the latest fad. When these technicalities, quote-unquote, are combined in a mix that's just right, we arrive at a valid code of morality by which both individuals and societies must govern themselves if they are to command nature without violating its own inviolable laws. And that's why freedom is not a natural condition. It arises from a moral code, one based on a commitment to reality and metaphysics, to reason and epistemology, to the self in ethics and morality, and to consent in both of the political and social realms. So you see, freedom is not natural. It's divine. It is the thing that sets mankind above nature. David Brooks, in his December 13, 2017 commentary in the National Post under the headline, What's Wrong with Radicalism? Quote, We're living in an age of radicalism, but today's radicalism is unusual. First, we have radical anger without radical policies. Today's radicals do not want to upend the meritocracy, which is creating a case system of inherited inequality. They don't want to stop the technical innovation, which is displacing millions of workers. They don't have plans to reverse individualism, which atomizes society and destroys community. A $15 minimum wage may be left-wing, but it's not Marxist-Leninism. Second, Today's radicalism is more about identity than social problems. Third, today's radicalism assumes that war is the inherent state of things. The key influence here is Saul Alinsky, he writes. His 1971 book, Rules for Radicals, has always been popular on the left, and recently it has become fashionable with the Tea Party and the alt-right. One of his first big assertions is that life is warfare. It is inevitably a battle between the people and the elites, the haves and the have-nots. Or, as his heirs would add, between the whites and the blacks, the Republicans and Democrats, Islam and the West. Fourth, today's radicalism is the low view of human nature. Today's radicals conduct themselves on the presumption that since life is battle, moral decency is mostly a hypocritical fraud. To get anything done, the radical has to commit evil acts for good causes. The ethics of means and ends is that in war, the end justifies almost any means, Alinsky writes. Ethical standards must be elastic to stretch with the times, he adds, and end quote. Which brings us back to the reality that means and ends will in politics still always be the same. You cannot employ evil means towards good ends. Now, I haven't had a lot of time to actually get into very much of Saul Alinsky's specific tactical advice, because a lot of that is actually valuable once divorced from its untenable roots. And among the most critical observations and valuable ones made by Alinsky that I agree with is the following, quote, With focus comes a polarization. All issues must be polarized if action is to follow. The classic statement on polarization comes from Christ, he that is not with me is against me. End quote. So the concepts of left and right represent that very polarization. You know, either you're on the left or you're on the right. And that's where we'll be again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, 
Be right, do right, stay right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Vote Harry S. Solomon. The S stands for know-how. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's snow-how. <laughs>